Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Here's what's ahead on this week's Investing Insights. Omaha, Nebraska will sit in the center of the investing universe this weekend. The Morningstar senior stock analyst who covers Berkshire Hathaway will join the podcast. Plus, what Morningstar analysts think about a trio of tech titan stocks following earnings. And learn about four great dividend funds that could suit your portfolio. This is Investing Insights. Welcome to Investing Insights. I'm your host, Ivana Hampton, and let's get started with a look at the Morningstar headlines. Facebook and Instagram parent Meta has reported first quarter growth. The results confirm Morningstar's view that the company has figured out ways to make money off reels, Meta's rival to TikTok. It also has improved ad conversions, and that could include users clicking on an ad, watching a video, or buying something via an ad. Morningstar still expects the social media giant to expand margins in 2024 and has raised revenue projections. Reels impressions and ad prices have improved. Cannibalization of other ads on Instagram could end by early 2024. Reels has helped increase time spent on Meta apps, and that should further increase ad demand. Meta is increasing ad conversions despite Apple's privacy policy changes. This reduces its dependence on data from others. Morningstar commends the firm for shifting its short- and medium-term focus toward increased efficiency. And the move will help increase capital for share buybacks and reinvesting in artificial intelligence. Morningstar has raised its estimate of Meta's worth by nearly $20 to $278 and views its shares as undervalued. Microsoft reported a strong fiscal third quarter with positives on both the top and bottom lines. The tech company's revenue grew 7% year-over-year to almost $53 billion, topping expectations. Important areas like Azure and Microsoft 365 deliver results above Morningstar's expectations, and the results are reinforcing the analyst's long-term position. Management's outlook for the June quarter is above Morningstar's view, despite macroeconomic pressures that include the banking crisis. Morningstar continues to center growth assumptions on Azure, Microsoft 365 E5 migration, and traction with the Power Platform for long-term value creation. Investors will likely have a call option on artificial intelligence and shares of Microsoft. That said, it remains unknown if enterprise software vendors are out of the woods yet from a macro perspective. Morningstar is lifting its estimate of Microsoft stock worth from $310 to $325 per share and sees the stock as slightly undervalued. E-commerce and advertising growth drove Amazon's first quarter results. The online retailer delivered better-than-expected revenue that rose 9% year-over-year. Yep, e-commerce giant saw continued slowing revenue growth in its cloud platform known as Amazon Web Services, or AWS. Management pointed to customer optimization efforts. Microsoft is also seeing the trend, but Microsoft and Amazon Expect these efforts to start easing by mid-year. Morningstar is impressed that Amazon's advertising revenue growth outpaced Meta and Alphabet. Amazon's second quarter outlook surpasses what Morningstar was expecting. In the long term, Morningstar still sees e-commerce, AWS, and advertising driving healthy growth for the tech company. However, the near term remains a work in progress. Macroeconomic conditions are sending mixed signals. Morningstar still estimates Amazon shares are worth $137 each and thinks the stock is cheap. Southwest Airlines' first quarter results arrived as expected. The Dallas-based carrier reported a net loss tied to extra costs 
and $325 million in lost revenue due to its holiday travel meltdown. It canceled more than 16,000 flights because of system issues in late December. Management announced it will receive 70 new 737s from Boeing instead of 90 this year. Southwest has scaled back its capacity expansion plans for 2023 as a result. It's expected to miss out on potential revenue from the loss of billions of available seat miles. Airlines use the metric to track a plane's capacity to generate revenue. Morningstar thinks Southwest faces a problem in the short run. The cost of running an airline like lease agreements and vendor and labor contracts are fixed, and Southwest will have fewer revenue-generating flights, miles, and passengers to cover those costs. Morningstar has lowered Southwest's stock worth to $54. Berkshire Hathaway will host tens of thousands of investors this weekend. Its annual shareholder meeting is scheduled for Saturday. Investing legends Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are expected to share their insights. Morningstar Research Services senior stock analyst Greg Warren covers Berkshire Hathaway, and he's joining Investing Insights. Greg, you served on the panel at Berkshire Hathaway's annual meetings for several years. Can you briefly talk about that? Yeah, the, the panel was an interesting uh, addition that uh, Berkshire brought in. Uh, they actually started about 15 years ago. Um, they brought in a journalist panel in 2009 um, with, with three journalists, and then they brought in the analyst panel, the first one in, in 2012. And the idea behind that was, you know, Buffett um, felt that, you know, shareholders weren't asking enough sort of company-specific questions, things that would allow them to sort of, you know, talk about uh, what was going on with the firm, the operations, what their expectations were. Um, you know, granted, they were asking a lot of questions about, you know, macro events and other things, which, you know, he loves to talk about, but he really wanted to sort of showcase a lot of things with Berkshire. So he figured bringing in some journalists, bringing in some analysts um, would help sort of um, keep the meeting focused on, on a lot of Berkshire-specific things. Um, we were fortunate enough to, to be on the panel for, for six years, um, up until the final year in, in, in 2019. Um, but, you know, they decided, you know, COVID interrupted everything. But even before that, they had decided to move away from the analyst panel because there was a lot of uh, uh, feedback from shareholders wanting to see Aji Jane and Greg Abel up on stage with Warren and Charlie because these are the guys heading, you know, the, the two big pieces of the business right now. And Greg is the heir apparent, so they really wanted to sort of uh, uh, get some some interjection from them during the course of the meetings. And unfortunately, the analyst panel was the, the sacrifice that was made. Um, but it is interesting because COVID interrupted things so much that they ended up actually eliminating the journalist panel as well. And now it's basically Becky Quick um, fielding questions from uh, outside of Berkshire from shareholders and then feeding those in and then shareholders asking questions as well. Um, you know, during the time we were on the panel, we, we thought it was a good addition. Um, you know, we as the analysts and the journalists were only allowed to have six questions during the course of the meeting. And, you know, we would try to really sort of hone in on, on either company-specific issues like what's going on with Geico or what's going on with Burlington Northern or capital allocation decisions. I think, you know, we really sort of spent a lot of time the last few years that we were doing the panel um, trying to get Buffett to sort of give us firmer uh, decisions or, or at least understandings about dividend share purchases and other capital allocation decisions. So what are you listening for at this weekend's meeting? Um, it, it, it's always interesting. I mean, at a higher level, when we look at Berkshire, you know, we, we sort of see it as a big decentralized operation, and that has both opportunities and problems associated with it. 
So when we're we're looking at the business, we're trying to understand you know where the operating businesses are, what the key competitive pressures are right now, and then also looking at capital allocation decisions because you know Berkshire's had this problem the past 10, 15 years where they continually have a lot of cash build up on the balance sheet. It's a great problem to have, but it, you know for the years that you know interest rates were near zero, it really wasn't helping sort of drive returns for the business. Uh, as we look forward to this year's meeting, I mean, it's a couple of standby questions that 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 continue to come up. You know, one is on Geico. They're they're really struggling relative to Progressive, which we feel is probably the best comparable for them. The auto insurance industry overall has been a mess. You know, post COVID, it's just you know up and down. And and right now, with all the inflationary costs in there on auto parts and and, and car replacements, it's just been tough for for a lot of operators to 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 run the business profitably. Now, Geico is profitable right now. But they're running far behind progressing. We kind of want some explanation about that, uh, how the business is, is doing since Todd Combs came on board and, and whether or not telematics, which they've apparently adopted, is making any sort of meaningful impact on underwriting. Um, same sort of issue at, at, at Burlington Northern. You know, they have one tough near competitor in the Union Pacific, um, and, you know, they've opted out of adopting precision scheduled railroading, which everybody else has adopted. And it's really kind of put them behind the eight ball from a profitability perspective. The The margin gap between them and Union Pacific has gone from about 300 basis points to 700 the last five years. So it's, it's, it's a troubling thing for us. And we'd like more answers about what they're doing, why this gap has gotten this wide, and whether or not they're going to adopt the, the, the scheduling uh, um, um, strategy overall. And then when we look at capital allocation, I mean, it is always, you know, where's cash? You know, how much is it building up? What kind of share repurchase activity are you doing? Uh, where do you, you know, have expectations about capital over the long run? So a lot of, you know, good areas for us to sort of focus on, you know, overall. Every year we actually put out a piece, you know, uh, looking at 10 questions we would ask if, if we were at the meeting this year. Um, and that piece should be coming out this week. All right. So this week, the second biggest... Bank failure in U.S. history happened. And, you know, we were watching it. Charlie Munger was watching this unfold. You know, First Republic Bank collapsed. J.P. Morgan Chase bought it. And Charlie Munger, he issued a warning about commercial property loans in a Financial Times article. What are you, your thoughts about his comments? Yeah, I, 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 I mean, he's, he's on to something in some sense. Um, and, and again, this is not a Berkshire-related issue. They're, they're not going to have any problems. They don't really have a whole lot of uh, situations where they fronted money, you know, for commercial property development or anything like that. Uh, I, I think this is more of a bank problem, more more than just a bank problem. I look at it as a bank problem, a, a debt market problem, but also a, a private capital problem. Um, if we look back over the past, you know, 10 years, you know, money's been relatively easy. Interest rates were near zero. Uh, and there was a lot of money flooding into to, to private capital funds as well. <laughs> so a lot of deals were done on the real estate side with the expectation being that rates were going to be lower longer. And if we look at like one sort of subset of that commercial market, which is office you know, properties, um, you know as well as I do, not everybody's back in the office. A lot of office leases have been terminated. So rents are falling below sort of where debt payments are now or where they're expected to be over time. And if we look back just over the past year, we've seen, you know, situations where um, the investors have basically defaulted on their their debt because either, A, they couldn't get the, the debt holders to renegotiate terms. Uh, they were running, you know, 
variable rate debt, which you know escalated significantly last year with rates going up 500 basis points, uh, or they just weren't c- collecting enough in rent to really sort of cover what was there. So we're likely to see more of that activity as we move forward. But I think that's still a problem as we spread out a little bit more. I mean, the banks are probably about as in good a shape as they ever have been. Um, you know, the financial crisis really taught a lot of lessons and really sort of minimized the amount of risk they were willing to take. And if you look back at that, you know, that decade period we just came through, um, you know, for loans that weren't being made by the banks, it was private capital that was stepping in and sort of picking up the slack. So when I say the pain is going to be felt across the board, it's a, it's a little bit of everybody getting it there. Um, and I was actually just talking to our bank analyst about this too. I mean, most of the um, commercial real estate loans is really sort of centered in a lot of the smaller banks. Um, you know, and, and then when we look at the banks that did fail here, it, it, honestly, these were not lending problems. You know, Signature Bank, Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic, all of them failed because they mismanaged their deposit base relative to their investment book. So they had a lot of long dated, you know, maturity um, holdings, you know, in, in their investment book. And when the depositors started asking for their money back, they kept taking huge losses in order to sort of meet those needs. So it just, it, it was more of a mismanagement problem on their part as opposed to a, you know, poor lending decisions. So in the past, Berkshire has come in to help trouble banks before. Do you see Munger and Buffett doing something during this banking crisis? I, I, I think based on the comments Munger made in, in the FT article, I don't, I don't see it happening. Um, I, I never say never. I mean, if, there's, if, if there were any sort of support coming in, it would probably be, again, to the money setter banks like they did in the financial crisis. They, they, they backstop Goldman Sachs. They backstop Bank of America. Um, but that comes at a price. I mean, they asked for preferred securities or preferred stock at a high coupon rate. Um, I think it was 10 or 11% for Goldman, and I think it was 9% for, for Bank of America. So a pretty steep uh, um, um, coupon on that. And then they also got warrants to buy common stocks. So, you know, from that perspective, it is a pricey thing to get the Warren Buffett seal of approval, you know, for those banks. Um, when I look at the smaller, more regional banks, it, it, it's tough to see. I mean... A lot of those would be more sort of uh, outright takeovers. Um, and if we look at Berkshire historically, I, I, I can't see them owning another bank. They did own one in the early 1980s. Um, they owned about 97% of it. It was called the Illinois um, um, National Bank. Really good regional bank, very profitable. Uh, but the regulators changed their opinion about you know, who could own banks that weren't you know, within financial services or weren't banking companies um, and forced Berkshire basically to sell it or keep holding it and become a bank holding company. And Buffett was like, well, we already have so many regulators looking at our books from the state side on the insurance business. I don't want the federal regulators, the banking regulators looking at our books as well, and maybe even sort of putting restrictions on what we can do from an investment perspective. So they actually sold off um, that stake. Now, they've, they've held banks since, but there's always been, you know, historically about a 10% threshold. You couldn't own more than 10% of a, a, a bank if you were a non-bank entity. Um, that's recently moved up to around 15%-ish. Um, still some gray area on that. We're not sure exactly where that number is. The, the regulators weren't really clear about you know, where sort of they're going to stop people from, from buying stakes. Buffett current, currently owns about 13% of Bank of America, and I think that's kind of where he's going to stay. I think he's concerned if he pushes it any further, then he's, either he's got to sell off positions 
or accept the regulators, you know, request that they become a bank holding company. Well, all right. So the Federal Reserve staff is predicting a mild recession later this year. Yep. Um, Warren Buffett, he's in his 90s. He has seen his fair share of recessions. Um, what has he done during past recessions and what can investors learn from him? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about that is, and it's unfortunately a, a, an answer most people don't want to hear, is, is basically nothing. I mean, it's, you know, Berkshire historically has been run on a completely decentralized basis. So when it comes to sort of making decisions about the businesses, that's all pushed down to the managers. They know what's best for their businesses. They know how to sort of navigate periods of either higher interest rates or inflation. Um, and he trusts them to work with that. Now, his job historically, him and Charlie, has been to take all the excess capital that's generated by these businesses and try and find lucrative opportunities to put, you know, money to work, which means market dislocations like we saw last year where the equity markets, credit markets sold off, or, you know, you're likely to see during a recession, that creates opportunities. So for him, he likes to see that. He likes to sort of be able to sort of go shopping and see if there's anything that he can pick up while, you know, the market overreacts to, you know, poor economic conditions or like last year to, to poor market conditions. So I, I would say that, you know, the, the key lesson there is, you know, and I think, you know, uh, Charlie hinted a little bit about this in the FT column last week is um, you just waiting for that fat pitch to come along, waiting for that good opportunity to come along. In fact, I think Charlie noted that he's, he's made most of his personal fortune owning just four different companies, you know? So from that perspective, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of learning their lessons about being patient and waiting for the opportunity that comes along. And then when it does just sort of seizing it. All right. So let's shift our discussion to Berkshire Hathaway stocks. It offers two types, Class A and Class B. What are the similarities and what are the differences? Yeah, I mean, the A shares are, are definitely the, the higher price shares. They come with, um, um, you know, 10,000 more voting rights than the, the Class B. Um, I, it's always hard to sort of explain that. It's like, you know, the Class B shares are one ten thousandth of the voting rights of the A shares, but they're one fifteen hundredth of the economic value. Um, and that's really the difference. I mean, the, the B shares do have voting rights. It's just significantly smaller than the A shares. And you know, Buffett owns you know, a large chunk of the A shares overall. So it, it sort of keeps um, his interest aligned with sort of the voting interest of Berkshire overall. Um, you know, when we look at the two share classes, you know, historically, they, they tend to trade you know, as though the, the, the B shares are worth one fifteen hundred. So if we look at like our fair value estimate right now, the class A shares, we have a $550,000 per share value on that for the B shares is 370 and that's just one fifteen hundredth of, of the A shares. And, you know, the past five, 10 years, it's been around that level. I mean, the premium is maybe 0.1, of, you know, the class A shares over the class B. Um, but what's been interesting this year, you know, especially since October is, um, that premium has been around 1%, if not more, there's been a couple of times, especially in the last month where it's been actually 2%. You know, and Buffett historically has told shareholders, hey, if there's the class A shares are trading at more than a 1% premium to the B shares, buy the B shares. Because the expectation is eventually that gap will narrow back to where it should be. Um, and for most of us, we really can't afford the A shares. I mean, buying them in, in, in large numbers is just not going to happen. So when we can get a discount on the B shares, it's worth taking a look at. Now, that said... I mean, the stock right now is trading at about, a, the B shares are trading about a 12% discount to our fair value. 
it's interesting. It's 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 definitely piqued our interest, and we you know we recommend people you know looking at it. We'd be happy to see the discount closer to twenty before really sort of aggressively buying the shares. But there's no reason to to, to step back from it here. I mean, it's it's it still offers a good value. All right, so. Our audience can check Morningstar.com and see that percentage hopefully drop to 20% and know that you're excited about that. (laughs) So what are a few stocks in Berkshire's portfolio that Morningstar considers undervalued? You know, it it is interesting because I I was actually just looking at that um, yesterday. There there aren't a whole lot of deep values right now. Um, A lot of names are trading at or above above fair value, surprisingly. but again, our, our fair value estimates have come down too, you know, during the past years as, as analysts have reacted to sort of, you know, the market conditions, but also um, the economic conditions. Uh, but, you know, if we look at the top 20 holdings, which are about 90% of the overall portfolio, we did find five names that sort of stood out. Two of them, not surprisingly, are banks. Um, Bank of America, I think, is trading at about a 25% discount to fair value right now. Um, Bank of America is about a 40%, or um, Citigroup is about a 40%. Um, Bank of America is arguably the better run bank. It is a wide mode firm. Um, but our analyst feels there's a greater sort of risk return trade off, you know, for Citigroup right now. So he actually has that sort of a best idea, um, you know, relative to, to, to B of A right now. But again, a 25% discount on a wide mode firm is nothing to cough at. Um, if we look, you know, down the list, Kraft Heinz has been a longstanding holding for, for Berkshire. It's trading at around a 25% discount as well. Um, they just reported earnings today. I, I saw Aaron's note and, and a pretty good quarter. I mean, inflation is definitely helping them here. But, you know, it, it has some troubles, just like a lot of other you know firms working in the consumer package good space right now. But, you know, it's a 4% dividend yield. And, and she thinks that that's a name that should really be in people's shopping list right now. Um, and then the last two names, you know, we got Paramount Global, which um, is trading at about a 45% discount, if I remember right. Um, that's a, a company that our analyst really likes. It's the best idea as well, um, and it's it's one that you know is you know he sees you know really sort of benefiting from live streaming you know over time. Uh, and then the last name that sort of fits this mold of you know sort of deeply undervalued would be General Motors. It's trading at about a fifty percent discount to our fair value estimate right now. Um, like most of the other auto manufacturers, it's been a tough slog. You know, post COVID, I mean, there was a huge semiconductor issue problem for for a number of years there which really sort of gunked up the supply chain. Um, everybody's just sort of working their way through that. You know, you know, his expectation is that, you know, GM has so far outperformed sort of expectations on, on sort of recovering from that. And he feels that's going to continue, even if we have a recession in the near term. So, so good, you know, five good solid names there across a, a broader sort of spectrum of industries. Um, so, you know, kind of, you know, interesting looking, you know, looking at right now. I mean, the biggest holding for Berkshire is still Apple. But that's trading at a premium to our fair value's estimate right now. So it's it's hard to see sort of, you know, um, making a recommendation on that right now. All right. So the recap, Bank of America, Kraft, Heinz, Paramount Global, General Motors. Citigroup. Citigroup. Yep. All right, Greg. Well, thank you for your time and your insights today. Thanks for having me. Adding dividend investments to your portfolio could provide a steady stream of income. Morningstar Research Services, Director of Manager Research, Russ Kennel is spotlighting four great dividend funds. A good dividend fund can deliver income, appreciation, and even defensiveness if you find the right one. There are two main dividend strategies, growth and yield. 
Dividend growth strategies sacrifice some short-term yield to find companies with potential to raise dividends over time. That requires a healthy balance sheet and good growth prospects. Dividend yield strategies go straight for the yield, but still look for companies with good fundamentals. I've got two picks from each camp. For dividend growth, I'm a fan of T. Rowe Price Dividend Growth, which we recently upgraded to gold. Tom Huber is a steady hand seeking out companies with strong cash flow and competitive advantages. He builds a diversified portfolio that tends to shine when things are darkest. In 2022, for instance, the fund's 10% loss was about 900 basis points less than the market, thanks to a strong emphasis on quality and balance sheets. Passive is also a good way to go here. Vanguard Dividend Appreciation Index tracks an index that looks for companies raising dividends, but eliminates the 10% highest yielders because those are higher risk. This gold-rated fund charges just 8 basis points, and it's available both in open-end and ETF formats. For dividend yield, let's stay with the passive Vanguard approach and discuss Vanguard International High Dividend Yield. The fund paid out a yield of more than 4% in the past 12 months by taking the higher yielding half of foreign equities and then market cap weighting them. It's a simple, cheap, and effective way to invest. Silver-rated Fidelity Equity Income is a good choice among actively managed equity income funds. Ramona Parsad is a cautious value investor who has guided the fund to steady results. She looks for solid cash flow companies that pay dividends. And though most of her picks are typical equity income names, she will dabble in growth names like Apple to boost return potential. Thanks, Russ. Subscribe to Morningstar's YouTube channel to see new videos from our team. You can hear market trends and analyst insights from Morningstar on your Alexa device. Say, play Morningstar. Thanks to craft editor and cinematographer David Editor and senior video producer Jake Bankerson. And thank you for tuning in to Investing Insights this week. I'm Ivana Hampton, a senior multimedia editor here at Morningstar. Take care. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. While this guest may license or offer products and services of Morningstar and its affiliates, unless otherwise stated, he or she is not affiliated with Morningstar and its affiliates. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.